When I create my artwork, it's quite a cathartic kind of experience. For me, I guess, you know, this information has kind of been whirling in my head for years and years and years. And then to kind of make it a visual and get it out of myself is, I see it as a healing process. Welcome to a brand new episode of A World of One's Own, a podcast where I speak with a series of artists I respect and admire. This time round, it's a special edition of five new episodes commissioned by the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery, featuring artists I've selected from their collection. I'm Ty Snaith, and today I'll be speaking with Gunditjmara Italian Torres Strait Islander artist Lisa Waup. We begin by talking about her powerfully personal shield-like work, Admit to Care. I'd like to welcome you here, not that you're a stranger to this place, Lisa Walp, to the Mornington uh, Peninsula Regional Gallery, and we are on Boonwurrung country um, of the Bunurong people. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I too would like to acknowledge the traditional lands that we're on today, the lands of the Boonwurrung and the Bunurong people. I'd also like to acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. And um, thank you for having me. You're the first of this inaugural series on site and we're at the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery. So it's a bit special. We're actually on site with your work. And the reason for this podcast series is just to speak about works on paper from the collection and five amazing women that have created them. So I thought we might start just by talking about this work that you have in the collection and maybe you could in your words, just tell me um, what it's about. Yeah. So this works on paper is called Admit to Care and it's a digital print using documents, old documents from um, my mother's uh, time in care. So it's an actually enlarged document and it's also an oversized copy of an envelope And then I have a very um, linear drawing on top of it, which has been stitched and it represents a shield. There's text in this image. um, So it's it's saying a little bit about what the document is and also the numbering that is very apparent in in the space and, you know, the stamps of Department of Human Services on there, which was a part of the Freedom of Information Act. And I think this actual paper was through... Uh, it says the justice of peace. Yep. And it's from 2014. So. Yeah, the work was created in 2014, but this document would have been probably 1955. Yep. So it's a fairly old document. The Queen has to get her head on there. Queen had to get her head in there. <laughs> I remember, I think there was another piece that I'd done and it had a, um, I put stamps because I love stamps too but I was putting them upside down and my mum was mortified. She's like, no, you can't put the queen upside down. I think you're allowed to put and the I'm queen like, upside yeah, down. And I'm like, yeah, I reckon I will. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then there's stitching along the base of it, um, hand stitching with black thread. Um, I, it's, it's very monochrome. It's black and white. And I guess the, uh, the linear drawing also kind of references Victorian traditional kind of um, imagery with the mines and the, the um, tri- um, diamond shapes. And um, so they became shields. I originally did these drawings that were very shield-like. And then for this one, I see it as 
the wood grain of a shield. So it was more, the more I got to know my history, the less layers it kind of was. Like it was actually layers of transparencies and, you know, multiple layers. And then this series, it was really kind of becoming more 2D and amalgamated and the stitching, which is still very much a part of my practice, whether it be in woven objects or even paper, I still love mm. stitching onto paper, is um, that idea of keeping that information together and keeping mm. it, um, yeah, protected. That's how I see it. It's protected. So yep. beautiful. There's just so many layers of sort of language in it, yep. which I find so as a languagey person, it's so sort of satisfying to look at. There's a really, as you say, personal language, isn't there, yeah. underneath of history, but then the abstracted sort of symbology on top of that. And that's all through mm. your work, it yep. seems, which is... Yep. But to put something that personal out there and then enter it in a prize, I mean, how did that feel for you? Um, I think when I create my artwork, it's quite a cathartic kind of experience. Um, for me, I guess, you know, this information has kind of been whirling in my head for years and years and years. And then to kind of make it a visual and get it out of myself is, um, it's a healing, I see it as a healing process for myself. Mm. And for it to come into uh, National Works on Paper all those years ago was, yeah, I was just absolutely blown away. Like it's, it's, yeah, I guess, as I said, it's a bit of a healing process for me. So for somebody to be able to kind of connect to it as well and, you know, like I had done um, a talk at a university some years ago and I'd shown this piece and it had the numbers on top and there was another couple in that series that had the numbers in there as well. And there was people in the audience that were, you know, had connections with the Holocaust and they were saying how, you know, their grandparents, great-grandparents were tattooed with numbers. So there was a couple of, um, yeah, not so dry eyes in that, in that talk when I did that. And, you know, I love the idea that art is a vehicle to be able to connect to different cultures and different people and people are able to see what they want to see in a piece of artwork. It doesn't necessarily mean they need to know the whole meaning of it. You know, they can stand there and they can feel something and, you know, that connects them to it. So I think that's the beauty of art. I think for me that process of stitching as well like you can't look at this work without then realising it's got it's been stitched by a hand and to know that that's your hand, you know, that's a process on top of that document which is part of your history yeah. and to understand the stitching just takes time and that took you time and yeah. that, that's part of that healing. It's so, it's such a, it's really, really beautiful, strong work. I'm so happy to, to talk to you about that. But maybe we could... Um, you know, talk about that idea of stitching a little bit because yeah. I feel like it's it's pretty strong in your work, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, most definitely. I think it runs through pretty much all of my work. Um, and, again, it's that idea of, you know, keeping things together. And um, I think after this series I started doing a little bit more with red. So red is um, very much a part of my practice. It might just have three red stitches in um, a woven object or you know, three stitches in in the paperwork or it might have a red line stitched across it. And for me that represents bloodlines and connections and whether it be connection to family or country or um, history, it's all kind of put together and, you know, I guess that that's a common thread in throughout all of my practice regardless of what medium it is, yeah. Are there different types of red? Um, it's 
There, is, there is different types of of red that I use. Yeah, definitely. Um, you would you'd think red is red, but no, it's not. <laughs> there is mostly, yeah, most definitely just dif- um, different colours. And you know, I was like, there were, um, I guess, the idea of fine Wally as well at some stage. Like it was. Where's the red? Where's the red, yeah. (laughs) And I love that that's so obviously blood, I mean, you know, the red and blood and passion and and the rest of your materials are quite kind of natural in colour, aren't they, like feathers? Yeah, most definitely. It always stands out. Yeah. But there's always red underneath, isn't there, no matter what colour's on top. And so that idea of, um, you know, you said stitching together, which what do you mean when you say stitching together? What are you stitching together? Yeah, I guess it's uh, information. It's the keeping of um, my history together. Um, yeah, and I guess it's a it's a protected kind of element that kind of runs through my practice as well. Yeah, but the stitching's very much um, a part of it. And I guess it kind of reflects my woven practice as well. And I guess, you know, looking back on it now, Stitching has been a part of of me for a very long time and, um, you know, even like my mum, my mum's a wonderful artist and she's forever creating things using her hands and stitching and mostly fabric and paper and so I think I've learnt the love of stitching from her and I probably, like, you know, that green in there, that's from one of her beautiful cottons from France. Like it's like a silk thread. It's absolutely beautiful. So I've kind of claimed it now and bring it out every now and then. (laughs) Use it sparingly. (laughs) Most definitely, yep. And the idea of the purple and the green, like I like the idea of the the colours, like contrasting colours. But for me purple is, you know, it's spirituality and I guess purple for me is probably my favourite colour out of all colours. So... It's so symbolic, I mean, that use of colour. But I love in this work how it's quite subtle because you you immediately see the black and white yes. and then when you get up close you see yep. that really delicate green and purple, which is such a, I mean, that's sort of a story in itself, isn't yep, it? Yeah, completely. Yeah, a lot of my work is it's very laid. I won't say a lot. I say all of my work is very laid and um, I guess symbols within them. But, you know, as you just said, uh, you know, you can stand back from that piece and you won't see the stitching until you kind of get closer to it and it's like, oh, gosh, yeah. And with your woven works, I mean, it seems to me a lot of them are act almost as vessels or, um, you know, they have a, not a function, but, yeah, I guess a vessel is the best way to explain them. And is that an intentional, is that just the form or is there a symbology in that as well? Um, I think I feel when I weave... It's really guided. Like a, a lot of things that I've created, I don't even really know how I've created them until I've finished them and then it's like, wow. Like recently uh, it was um, Bayside City Council had acquired a few of my pieces and they brought them back to my house to have like an interview with them and it was like these family members that I hadn't seen for such a long time and it was like, oh, that was so lovely to see. And one of them was a dual figure. It was called Chosen Before Birth and it was a figure that had two heads so it represented the mother that I've grown up with and my birth mother and then a baby cradled in in the arms. Hmm. And I looked at it and I thought, I don't even know how I did that. Yeah, I just don't, like, I'm thinking to recreate something like that, which is not never possible like everything's really very one-off and um 
it's very guided by materials and, you know, I'm forever collecting materials and might not use them for several years but, you know, it'll come a time where it's like, oh, yes, I know what I can do with that. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very guided process and I feel that, you know, I have to kind of be open to that. I feel like I'm being guided by ancestors and just having that connection, especially using natural materials within my work. So, and for me, it's the, you know, it's the intangible that becomes tangible because you're able to kind of feel it and touch it as whereas, you know, I guess my history is very fractured and not there. So it's, it is there, but it's, it's, there's missing elements to it. So nature is a connection and, um, and I've done work that it, it, really substituted family, like having the nature in there and having that connection. So beautiful to hear it put that way and eloquent because I feel like sometimes it's not that easy to understand when Mm. it's not your history and we shouldn't attempt to try and understand that if it's not your history. But your birth mother is Gundich Mara, am I right in saying that? And so have you reconnected with that, her stories? Yes, So a lot of her stories to me have been oral. So I'm still trying to find out a lot more information about my history and my family, Um, but not so much for me anymore. It's becoming for I want to know more for my children and even for my birth mother and, you know, my aunties and, you know, just my cousins, like, you know, even their information, what they have is so limited. So... I'm forever trying to connect with people to be able to find more information and how it all kind of um, comes together. Yeah, that's such a big task. It's such huge. an important task. Yeah, though. it's it, a life task. Yeah. It reminds me of I was lucky enough to go to um, Marie Clark's house and speak to her, like yeah. amazing, amazing woman, and actually not dissimilar um, the way she spoke about just relearning a lot of stuff that she knew was hers mm. but, you know, and that she had the right to relearn yep. to be able to teach all her nieces and nephews yep. and everyone those practices, yep. which is a huge thing to do. Yeah, it's massive. Yeah, she's a, a cultural keeper, Marie. Like she's just, she revives practices that are dormant and, you know, it's just, yeah, I have huge admiration for what she does. And also the way you were speaking about collecting, like to see her collection and I watched a few videos with you too. um, (laughs) It's not dissimilar either, you know, like just her collection of quills and um, teeth and those all those things that Mm. I guess are a language in themselves, aren't they? You know, Most definitely. And as you said, I think in one of the videos you don't, necessarily know that you'll use them all but just to have them there is like a resource yep and it's inspiration yeah I've got a great collection of teeth and (laughs) even my daughter yesterday was like have you still got our teeth mum you know all our teeth I said I've got every single one of them (laughs) yeah along with some (laughs) other animals teeth (laughs) oh I've got heaps of animals teeth and bones and Mm. feathers and you know and for me I feel like I'm giving them another life these creatures that deceased or no longer and you know I feel like I'm honoring them as well with creating something from them yeah yeah that's beautiful and so paper though like with teeth I can understand and even shells they last so long yeah but with paper and thread I mean how does that at what point in your practice does that inform the more you know long-lasting things um I think paper is my first love Mm -hmm. for a medium like I've Ever since I was a little girl, paper, you know, that was always their paper, paper. So I think with paper I love the idea that it's unforgiving, you know. it's Once it's done, it's done, right? Yep. Yep. And if, if you um, 
mark it or bend it or it's yeah, it's unforgiving medium. So. Can't iron it back out. No. I know. I love paper too, but it's, <laughs> yeah, no forgiveness yeah. there. Uh, so is it at the beginning of your practice, would you say? Like, yeah, most definitely. And then you go from that, mm-hmm. build on that. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then I created a series of sculptures for um, ACCA. There was a, a wonderful exhibition there called A Lightness of Spirit is a Measure I of Happiness. I remember that show. It was The fantastic. curator, um, Hannah Presley. And so these actually made a bit of a, I, a part of the series. I'd also created some small ones that I had them sitting there and I hadn't used them. So they became these cloaks on these figures that I created. So I like the idea of using paper as a sculptural item as well. Um, like, you know, for the even for the National Works on Paper for this year, you know, the, their sculptures made from, entirely made from paper. Mm. Even there's like little vessels that our little figures sit in and they're made from paper pulp and it's f- copies of my adoption records that I've kind of shredded and pulped and created these vessels. So, And in terms of you growing up, I know just from a tiny bit of research I did your, you had Italian... They're my family. Yeah, yeah. awesome. And yeah. how did that, I mean, what did you take from that culture? Oh, gosh, heaps. Yeah. yeah. Everything, who I am is from my mum and dad and my brother and my family and, yeah, completely. I didn't find out about my Aboriginality until my um, twins, they would have been about six. Wow. So they're 22 now. Yep. 22, 23, oh, gosh. <laughs> it's really, yeah. amazing. So it's it's quite fresh, you know, like it's it wasn't that long ago. So my influence was my family, you know, and just and I guess the love of family. The Italians are big with family, you know. They're just, they honour their family. They do everything for their family. So that's been instilled in me from a very young age. So I feel very fortunate. And then I... Um, yeah, we got married to a Papua New Guinean that we met. I met him at university, so we were. He was a year above me, and I remember going into the studio, and there was a pair of pig's tusks under my table, and I'm like, teeth! Oh, like, <laughs> I was so excited. And then somebody said, "Oh, that must belong to that PNG guy that's in the year above." And I'm like, oh, okay. So I gave it to him. He, he still remembers to this day how I handed it to him. He goes, Mummy, you handed it to me like it was something so precious, you know, like he, he, I think these are yours, you know, I'm giving them back to you. He goes, you keep them. <gasps> so then I felt like he put a... Ring on your finger. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, not cursed me, but he kind of spe- put me in a spell. So all these years I've been trying to find those tusks again. Like, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> But amazing. anyway, so, yeah, and then um, so when we finished uni, I went to PNG because he had to go back. He was in a sco- doing a scholarship. And then that was in December, I went there. And then February, I was married to him. And then October, I had twins. And this was all in Port Moresby. So I'd learnt so much, embraced his culture so much. And just I felt like I was home, like it was the most bizarrest feeling I'd, I've ever experienced. And then not until I came back and we were living back in Melbourne again, I was able to connect and find my mum, my birth mother, and she's like, you're Aboriginal, Lisa, and Torres Strait Islander. I'm like, okay. Oh. So it was like, wow, yeah. So I've learnt, he's been an amazing teacher for me, um, Papa, I call him Papa. He taught me a lot. He's, yeah, I will never deny that. Yeah, he's taught me a lot about... I guess, um, you know, just that tribal aspect, I guess, and, you know, what family and custom and and law and, you know, he's, yeah, he taught me a lot. 
such yeah. a beautiful story. And is his his surname Walp? Is Walp. that where your name? Okay. Because yep. that's quite an unusual, I've yep. never heard it before. Yeah, his name is Nalp. Walp. Wow. Yep. And so he, is no he Walp. an artist also still? He is. Yep. Wow. Yep. He's in PNG, but um, yeah, he's an incredible artist. Hmm. Yeah. Have you made work together? Uh, we've had shows together. We, yeah, most definitely, you know, a lot of times he's kind of like there was one piece that I created and it was called A Poison Basket and so it was inspiration from poison bags from PNG and, um, you know, he'd kind of explained to me different elements or there was actually different elements that were put into this poison basket. It wasn't active but it was just components of it. What so is a poison bag? It's like a shaman's bag. Oh, or, okay. Yep. But mine was a basket, yep. <laughs> That's beautiful. Did you show the, them together? Um, not, or he hadn't made? No, he hadn't okay. made. He just kind of... Talked um, about it. Yeah. Yeah, wow. That's quite powerful, just, yeah, the crossover yep. influence. And he was lecturing at um, the University of Papua New Guinea. So then when I went there, I was teaching printmaking and photography. And Well, he was more printmaking, but I was, I was his right hand, Yeah. And so I guess, I mean, the poison bag basket idea is a good way to ask this question, but I'm sort of interested in how those objects that you make can tell a story without using words. Yeah. How, how do you think they do that? Um, I think when I create something, I put, totally put myself into it as I'm making it. Sometimes I know what the story is before I start and sometimes I know when it's complete. And I guess it depending on what materials have been used and how it connects to that and how that connects to that and, and then this story kind of evolves from it. But um, a lot of it is materially driven as well and I guess, and, you know, maybe I'm thinking about things as well and it kind of gets woven into the story of it. And So partly listening to the materials yep. and what they, how they speak and yep. then partly influencing it a bit from what you're feeling. Yeah, and- most definitely. I know I feel like that sometimes if I'm in a bad mood, I just break my work all the time by yep. accident. Oh. And, but if you're in a good mood, it just yep. grows. It just like, flows. Yep. Yeah, it's quite powerful that yep. y- your input. Yep. But then, like you say, some materials have to be able to give in a certain yep. way, don't they? Yep, true. Hmm. Yeah, I have a question that says how do, you, how do your works relate to ideas of identity and country? So maybe we could just talk a little bit more about that. Yep. Um, I guess the idea for me is using natural materials for that way to connect with country and I guess that also extends to identity. Um, yeah, it's it's very much part of my practice, the idea of materials and, yeah, it's a huge part of it. And I feel that, um, as I said before, you know, it's these missing elements within my history that I can connect with with materials and collecting on country. And it doesn't necessarily mean my traditional country, which I've never really been able to connect with at the moment. So it's, for me, it's a place wherever I am, I feel like I have that connection to to the land and the idea that, um, you know, every object is a living being regardless of what it is and to respect those elements and, you know, to give thanks to them. You know, I get given little packages of birds or, you know, I find them on the side of the road or, you know, even um, using leaves or, you know, it's it's that idea of asking permission if 
you know, I can use them before I just take them. You know, it's not about taking, you know, seeing it and thinking, oh, I want to use this. It's, it's that respectful kind of transaction in some ways. And then you also have a, I mean, just beyond your practice, I think it's important to mention that you have been that to lots of other practitioners. So you help run Baluk Arts. So at Baluk Arts, I'm the programs coordinator. I think the title now is special programs coordinator. <laughs> yeah, so I've been working at Baluk Arts since 2012. Um, Baluk Arts is an Aboriginal, 100% Aboriginal owned art centre. And this is actually our 10th year, but it's kind of been hijacked by COVID. So we're going to do an exhibition actually here at the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery, not just it's a very small, I guess, focus on past and present. Mm. Yeah, it's it's an amazing place to be a part of. And, and I, I think in the last couple of years, it's been 100% owned and run by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And previous to that, we had um, Tracy Lee Smith, who is an incredible visionary and she was she actually set up Bullock Art so and then it's kind of been passed on to us now yeah so it's been yeah it's a special place for me I see it as a support because a lot of people at Bullock Arts have very similar backgrounds as well there's a lot of detachment from culture and majority of them don't live on country they live here they've either come here or they've been born here so it's they haven't really grown up from where they're from so it's it's a bit of a mixed bag there and I guess we all kind of feel the same way that it's like a healing process and, you know, having common bond with people that have similar backgrounds and, yeah, I found that an amazing experience, you know, to be able to connect with people that, you know, were adopted at birth or, you know, that, you know, it, it, you don't feel so alien in some ways or so isolated, yeah. Yeah, not alone. No, exactly. Yeah. And together you sort of forge a new yep. path. Yep. And then I think that process of um, like selling work and representing work gives a certain type of um, autonomy and power. Is yep. that how? Oh, completely, yep. And so but facilitating that, I guess you have to have a certain way of, I don't know, putting it out to the public as well and yes. communi- communicating that. Yep. Yeah, most definitely. Look, we have people come into the art centre sometimes because I guess our work is very contemporary. We're, you know, urban artists as opposed to remote kind of artists. Um, so a lot of people will come in and say, oh, where's the Aboriginal artwork on the walls? And <laughs> right. we're like, oh, yeah, you're looking at it. <laughs> so yeah. Aboriginal artwork is created by Aboriginal people. So regardless of what the medium is or what it's, it's entrenched in story, it still has that connection to who they are and they're explaining who they are within their artwork. Yeah, yeah, and then, and then wanting to share that, I guess, or oh. people to buy it yep. as well and respect it. Yep. And, um, yeah, I guess that kind of leads that idea of collaboration um, to this. This is kind of a heavy question for me to ask, but I feel like it's important to ask for me mm. and for everyone. Um, yeah, just as a white middle-class woman myself and from German-English background, yeah. um, I understand that I have a huge amount of privilege attached to my race and my identity and I just wanted to know from you like how you see white women like me working for you in the future working with you to make a different future yeah 
I know you've done a bit of collaboration with like that amazing work, what you're wearing at the moment. I really, I'm so jealous. I love it so much. It's beautiful. With Verna, right? Yes. So that first came about with Liz Little and um, Creative Victoria and being offered or asked if I'd like to participate in this. And it, it, the first collection was also um, with in conjunction with Craft Victoria. So Sarah Weston was a big driving force for that first collection. And so it came from there, really. And um, and then Ingrid Werner is the designer behind Werner. Yes. Yep. She's a Melbourne-based fashion designer. So she has her own amazing practice and collection. I think she's just released another one now. And, um, yeah, she's great inspiration, yeah. And did you hand print those fabrics? Like is that how These that... ones are digital. Ah, so, cool. But it's using my drawing, like it's yeah. my hand mark. It hasn't changed from here to the actual designs. We did in the second collection, um, which was titled Journeys, we actually work at Spacecraft in Collingwood. Ah, with Stuart. With Stuart Russell and his incredible team there but they were more I guess prototypes and they were hand screaming and they were the ones that went to Hong Kong Business of Design Week and yeah so that was an amazing experience working with Stuart. So how do you see that going forward that type of collaboration? Um, I think collaborations are really powerful you know if you get the right collaboration and the right connections I think they're very powerful you're getting two people coming together with different knowledge to be able to create something quite magical so um, yeah there's a lot of trust that goes into doing collaborations and um, I guess for me you know it's not something that would have happened straight away it's something that takes time you know all of those designs that are within those collections are personal stories so you know, I really wanted Ingrid to kind of understand who I was before we kind of really just pushed things out. But we didn't really just push things out because it's very, you know, I see them a bit like my practice. They're limited edition. They're not mass produced. You know, the quality of the materials are beautiful. And um, But how do you feel about like white women like me wearing that? Yep. Yeah, but I've got, I've, I'm white too, you know, like I'm mixed, I'm, I'm both. So it's, I don't have a problem with that. I feel a huge amount of um, pride. You know, I see people, you know, people take photos and send them to me, you know, I'm wearing, I get a huge amount of pride. You know, for myself, I know that when I wear them, I feel a little bit taller and prouder mm. and, you know, and the idea to be able to, you know, start conversations. Oh, wow, you know, that's really, you know, what is it? And, you know, it starts these conversations. And, you know, fashion is a really powerful vehicle for right. doing that. Like it's, people wouldn't really think about it. It's, didn't that collection go to the catwalks in Paris or something? Nah, was nah, nah. It was somewhere in Oh, we went to Hong Kong. Oh, Hong Kong. Yep. <laughs> Still? <laughs> oh. It could oh, go it was to amazing Paris. though. It was, yeah, it was an amazing it, experience. Yeah, it was huge, wasn't it? And the demand, you had to do a second. Yeah, we did the first one and then we've done a second one and now we're kind of thinking about another one. So cool. um, we're just creating dreams at the moment and, and stories and, you know, we meet each other once a month and we talk about things and I'm madly drawing, I keep drawing. Like these are all drawings from my visual diary so that Ingrid's kind of translated. And I've always loved fashion. You know, <laughs> as a younger person, you know, I'd make my own clothes and my mum was an amazing sewer so she taught me a lot how to make my own clothes and my grandmother 
this is, you know, my Italian grandmother was a seamstress in Italy, so that was passed on to her. And then I feel like my mum's passed it on to me and, you know, just so it was a dream come true. I, I remember, you know, as a much younger person, I'd create my own designs and then have my own a label, you know, I think I had puffy paint. I'd <laughs> write my own label name and awesome. it was called LSD because... <laughs> My name was Lisa Scarcella and, you know, designs. And, you know, this was like when I was 16 or something. So, um, yeah. Have you still got those things? No, 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 no. Yeah, that would be funny, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Be cool in your retrospective. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh, no, no. Puff paint, I was a big fan. Oh, puffy paint, I love puff (laughs) But so it is something that you can see going forward is a real vehicle for you to sort of, to exploit really. Like, yeah. And, and to, to explore, yeah. yeah. And, you know, the idea, I don't stick to one medium. It's still storytelling regardless of what medium it is and I'm still be, being able to express, you know, my history and my connections and, you know, I, I love working on multiple things at once and, you know, like we went to One Turner Market on the weekend with my three kids and we get there and they're like, oh, starting to look and I'm like, I'll catch, you've all got your phones? Yep, all right, I'll catch you later. <laughs> Whoosh, and off I went because I was just like, they were like looking and I'm like, no, 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 I'm like, I've got to scour now yeah. I can find bits and pieces. So, you know, like little plugs from old sewing machines that look like teeth and there was a fella there that was selling. He had a little, probably a square stuff. He'd already packed all his stuff away and there was a little boy there and it said free, take whatever you want. <laughs> so there's a little boy taking all the tools and I saw a shark egg and I'm like, <gasps> sweet. So I'm like, grab the shark egg and, you know, you know, just people see different things. So, you know, I've created the idea of recycling and, you know, I've created um, jewellery out of bottle tops and, you know, that was really fun because I did it with my dad. You know, my dad's 80-plus now and, um, you know, I did a commission for the Art Gallery of South Australia. I think it might have been... Mm, the ah, year before. I saw that when they flattened the bottle tops. Yeah, they were cool. Yeah. So we had to do a 1,000 of them. Wow. And, you know, I'd people would be collecting these bottle tops and, you know, sending me packages of bottle tops. There was, was a lady in the Netherlands that recently sent me a box of bottle tops. She's, and I, I met her down here when she was in Melbourne and she's gone back home and she said to me, "Would I'm going to go travelling. Would you mind if I collected you some bottle tops? I said, I'd love it. She wanted a reason, obviously. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then she said, at some stage I had to stop, Lisa, because all I was doing was looking at the ground. So I wasn't looking at all the sights around me. I was like scouring the ground. And you know, it's a precious little item that people would walk past. And for me, you know, it's a symbol of community. It's a symbol of, um, I guess, connection. It's, it's got, I guess, celebration attached to it as well. Or, you know, so there's a lot of different um, meanings with it. But it's also not dissimilar to, say, like a shell or a yep. pod or yep. something that you might find in a natural landscape. It's yep. just in the new natural yeah, landscape. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But it's still a precious little thing. That type of thing happens intuitively, right? Like you collect yes. those things and then you work out yep. what, the, why, why you're collecting yeah, it. Yeah, I, I can't even recall how that kind of, I just, because it's got the artwork on them and they're all so different and the colours and they're, you know, really quite beautiful on them on their own. And I think I'd said to Dad, oh, I'd love to make um, some brooches or earrings or something from these. And he worked out how to flatten mm-hmm. them, takes off the little plastic bit on the inside and flattens them to perfection. And it's like, um, I'm not sure, yeah. So he goes, do you want me to still make them? I said, as long as you still want to make them, I'll make them. 
because once you don't want to make them, I won't be making them anymore. It was for you. Yeah. No, I don't so have sweet. that um, patience. Like he'd say it'd take about 20 or 30 minutes just to prepare one of the bottle oh, tops. What? Yeah. And he did thousands of them. Did oh, thousands that's commitment. Of them. He loves you. Yeah. And I so with your own too. kids, do you have a practice of a similar thing? Like do you feed into what they do or do they help you with anything? Or? Um, oh, most definitely. So my big girl, she sometimes sits next to me in the studio. So she's created amazing earrings with the bottle tops, for example, or creating like free-formed silver, you know, playing with silver wires. And I've got huge collections of shells and seeds and bits and pieces and stones and teeth. So she's been making these amazing earrings. And, yeah, I think we all just feed off each other. Is there a limit though? Because I know my kids have started finding their way into my studio and helping themselves and now I've encouraged it for so long and now no, I'm no, a bit no. like, hey, <laughs> yeah. like, not no. that paint, no. not that paper. No, you've got to ask. Yeah, you've got to ask, right? you got to <laughs> ask. Definitely. Yeah, and then tell me what you're making yeah. first. Yeah, then. that's it. Okay, good. It's yeah. not free for all. Yeah. No. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> but it's so lovely when you can see that they're getting involved with oh. carrying on those. Yep. Stories in their own way, right? Yeah, completely in their own way. And I like that idea of being able to pass something onto them or, you know, to show them something and, you know, they kind of translate it in their own way or, mm. yeah. And then, um, and then, like, take it to school and sell it or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm oh, pretty sure they've done it. that too. Yeah. <laughs> Watch out they're not selling your stuff on the black market at school. Yeah, you'll have to nip that in the bud. I reckon. Yeah. yeah. And one thing I was thinking about just I've been reading um, I've been reading Talking Up to the White Woman. Yeah. The last for my book club actually, which should be happy to know. And um, it's, pretty, it's, it's amazing. Like yep. Eileen Morton Robinson. She's it? amazing. She's amazing. Yeah. And just so fierce and articulate. And, yeah. I was sort of wondering about the institution because I know that, like, even for someone like me working with an institution, I find difficult at times. Yep. But um, you obviously have a great relationship with Danny and with this place. Yes. And so, yeah, could you talk a little bit about, talk, you know, working with an institution? Yeah, I think you're talking about um, talking up the white woman. I've actually just been reading that myself because I'm studying at the moment at um, VCA. So I've just submitted my essay and it had, um, I was talking about life writing and how it kind of connects to my work. But yes, I guess the idea of working with institutions like this, you know, it's, it's a great way to be able to share, you know, to be able to, and same with McClellan Sculpture Park and Gallery, we have a lot to do with them as well. And, you know, it's that that place where we can kind of grow and share and, you know, both ways, not just, you know, us with them, but them with us as well. And I think that's a really important part of growing and to be able to feed people with um, skills and, you know, inspiration. And so I think it's, yeah, it's a very valuable part of what we do at Bullock Arts as well. And even just I was listening to you sort of, talk to Danny about how you wanted your work displayed and like that sense of control is is really important right yeah. like you need to have a relationship where yeah you you say that first like yep. you're the boss yeah oh well I think it's more like it's a vision in my head and I really want to tell you like I've just yeah so I mean it depends I don't even know what the space is that we're using so that's why I was going to kind of have a little look at that today and 
but um, and just to work out how it, like, yeah, we can see it in our head, but, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, and then it'll be really nice we get to show this work again from your works on paper when we have the show next year. Oh, fabulous. Along with all the other people that I speak to from oh, the collection wonderful. and one of my works. So oh, we'll get to show together, oh, which exciting. will be nice. Oh, how lovely. <laughs> I've really thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you today. And, um, yeah, I just want to say thank you because it's been incredibly um you know, I feel really privileged to oh, to meet you today. Thank so. you. No, it was a wonderful experience for me too. Thank <laughs> you. I'll see you again soon. Yep, beautiful. Thank you. What I loved so much about this conversation and about Lisa Warp's practice is the way she describes the process of collecting history and stitching it together in order to protect the layers. How she uses nature as a connection, finding meaning in the language of things like feathers and teeth and bones, other collected treasures how they help her connect fractured or missing elements from her history. Lisa's like a cultural detective, working not only for her own sake, but on behalf of her broader extended family, filling in the gaps of knowledge, a life's task. Lisa is such a brilliant medium for objects to tell their stories, guided by her ancestors, as she says herself. Lisa proves that there are many ways to tell a story. This special edition series of A World of One's Own was commissioned by the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery as part of their 50th year celebrations. Audio production by Camilla Hannon and music by Fia, spelt P-H-I-A, from her album The Ocean of Everything. All five new episodes can be found on the MPRG website and your favourite podcast player. The exhibition will run from the 4th of March 2021 until the end of April. To hear more episodes of A World of One's Own, visit tysnaith.com.